Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode 86, When to Use Svelte. Hopefully I said that right. This is Mike's episode. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there's a couple of ways you could do that. You can uh, review us on that Apple podcast or on the podcast platform that you're listening to this on. You can also check us out on that Patreon. we only got a couple of tiers, but the $3 tier will give you a shout-out in the podcast, and we will share uh, a link to your website in our show notes. And probably the most important one is just to tell your friends or anyone else that you were, uh, were here and ready to be listened to. And if you or your friends want to go a step further... You can come check us out on our Discord server and come hang out, chat with a bunch of different developers from all different experience levels. Uh, we're talking about movies, we're talking about off-topic stuff, we're talking about Svelte, I guess, we're talking about Webflow, we're talking about a whole bunch of stuff. So come on down, stretch your PHP muscles. I was thinking, I was hoping that would be a little smoother and, uh, you know, get, get, get learning, I guess. Get learnt, as uh, Ricky says from the Trailer Park Boys. But uh, anyway, Mike, Weekly Pain Point, please... Take it away. All right. Uh, I mean, with what's going on in the world right now, there's a lot of weekly pain points, but I'm going to pick a couple here, which is just feeling anxious a little bit and future planning. I think future planning is probably the biggest one for a lot of people right now. Like, how do you you financially plan when all this uncertainty is going on, when there's a bunch of layoffs? Like, I'm sure almost everyone has been affected financially in some in one way or another. I would say. So how do you future plan with that? We don't, no one knows when this is going to be over, which is also really weird. Um, specifically, if you're listening to this a lot later, we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, COVID-19. COVID-19, which is weird, which is weird to think of in the future, actually. There might be, you know, people listening to this a year down the line where this isn't even a big deal anymore. And hopefully. Th- th- this will be like our, our grandparents or possibly great grandparents, depending when they were talking about the 30s and how uh, they lived through like a really, you know, really bad depression. Yeah. And I'm like, even if I listened to this a little while ago and hear like the anxious voice that I have and the weird thoughts that I'm having, I might laugh at it, hopefully. Um, but well, one, right of the, now, one of the things that's the scariest, though, is the the uncertainty, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like we're we don't know. And uh, it's weird. It's weird to be in the situation where we just have. We have a little bit of an idea because China is starting to come out of it. As far as we know, again, we're getting, you know, probably filtered messaging from there to a certain degree. Uh, and Italy's maybe start not recovering, but slowing down to a certain degree. So we have some indicators of this stopping or ending or at least getting beaten a little bit. But we're also not sure if any of that is real, like if any of that is true, if any of that is can be prolonged. Like, is is it going to come back? Those are the kinds of questions that I'm asking myself all the time. Like, is this going to be, um, you know, maybe another couple months? Is this going to be, you know, six months? Whatever. Like, I don't I don't know. I have no idea. And that's, that's where my anxiety and my inability to future plan is kind of coming from. And that's, that's my pain point this week. Uh, well, my weekly pain point is similar. It is uh, more or less future planning. We are planning on what the fallout of all this is going to be. So we're lucky enough to be in a, an industry where we already work from home. It's already equipped to do that for anyone that did go to any sort of office. So, I mean, we're working online on websites, so the website is remote. That's just the way it is. So we're lucky enough to do that. 
we've noticed some some clients, you know, take back or like be more conservative with their money and not want to do stuff. And we have others that now they're sitting around, they want to do more. So it's kind of a weird balance and we're doing okay that way. So we're lucky enough in that regard. But it's definitely the unknown stuff. One of the scariest things I think is there's a lot of conflicting opinions out there. Like I've read an opinion where someone's like, well, everyone's just going to get this. That's just the way it is. But then when you look at worldwide numbers, you don't even have worldwide numbers at the amount of one Chinese city. And if China is indeed coming out of this, then me as a non-medical outsider and just logicking through would think, well, then isn't it still like a low percent chance of us getting it, assuming we do what our governments say, like social distancing and stuff? Like if I'm stuck in this house all week and I only go and only go and like get vitals and, you know, see minimal people and, you know, just do that stuff. Like I'm not going to restaurants and stuff. Am I safe? I think that was like, I think today and yet last night was the first time I started questioning the illness itself. I was more worried about the economic and the everything else before. But now it's a question of are like am we gonna have like a couple of deaths in the family because of this? Like is this a statistically possible, probable thing? I don't know. And so, so I don't know. My my thing is that the numbers that we see right now in the news, we don't know if those are correct because the testing isn't isn't there yet. And second of all, what we're doing right now is not not stopping us from getting the disease it's only delaying the system so that the healthcare system has time to adapt get all the masks they need get all the ventilators they need so that when and if it ever becomes a bigger problem they're able to solve it yeah it is is a big problem it's it's just flattening the curve so deaths in the family and stuff i wouldn't worry too much about that Uh, like you should i mean worry but don't worry but too much about that as long as you're following the right principles like everyone should be social distancing and that that's what this is supposed to avoid. It's supposed to limit the amount of deaths. It's supposed to limit those decisions that doctors have to make to put one person on a ventilator and not put another person on a ventilator. That's what we're doing. That's what this is. And once we get past that process and when if hopefully the hospitals catch up and the healthcare catches up, it won't be as deadly of a disease as the numbers say right now. So that's the goal. Like we don't want people to die. I think that's everyone. No one wants to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's what we got to stop. I, I, any sort, like you know, financial circumstances aside, that's what we have to do. That. So I, I hope you're right, though, Matt. That's my biggest thing. Is like out of all this, I really hope you're right, and uh, not everyone gets it. And I hope, maybe, who knows, maybe a vaccine will be available in a few months. Well, they've already is- well. 12 to 18 months, they put one into trials. So it's already yes, in they human put, trials. Exactly, exactly. This is, but these are different circumstances. Like everything is different right now. So all the the, the book that has been created, you know. Yeah, this yeah kind of if this is, works is in six months, out. they might be like, fuck this. We got to put this out there. That's like, what I mean. You might lose a leg, but you won't die <laughs> or yeah. something crazy. Like if that's the case, then that's the case. So who knows? Uh, let's just hope for the best, prepare for the worst. That's kind of my motto. Also, uh, I would say this helped me a lot yesterday was my headache finally went away. I had a headache for a long time and it kept getting worse. Uh, and that was due to this though, 100% due to stress. Cause like I'd be like, I'd sleep fine, wake up fine, read an article, have a headache immediately. Yeah. Um, what I've started doing is I'm just listening to the, in our case, we're li- I'm listening to the Canadian government and their website. 
I've started to stop reading uh, articles. So I didn't read any articles or anything yesterday. And then I, other than the official one, like I said, the official government one. And then I went and I, um, I watched like, like an idiot. I watched like three or four videos and there were like people laying people off and crying and people talking about great depressions and how we'll never get out of this and how everyone's going to be sick and how people say they're, they're going to get sick and they're not, they don't care about that. They only, they're just waiting to get sick. And oh yeah, that's what I was watching last night for bed. So that was a good, that's a good bedtime rule. And then I went and played Animal Crossing to calm down. So that was good. Um, but like, I think, I think the main thing is, is like, we, if, if the government, tells us to social distance and that's our instruction, then I think we just need to nose to the grindstone, work where we can, do whatever our official health officials say, and that's it. Because they have the the main plan and we're just cogs in the plan. They know what's going on. Like, that's just it. Be vigilant, do whatever the government says to do, wash your hands, whatever. And that's, I think that's that's the best way to do it. Because I actually don't have a headache today because I didn't read any articles. So, nice. that's good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, and I noticed that quite a few people actually started getting a headache like me. I know I learned that the other day. It was, it was just like people just going crazy. But anyway, uh, enough about the coronavirus. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard enough about it at this point. On to, on to Svelte, I guess. So, Mike, this is a Mike-heavy episode. Please, please, sir, take it away. Okay. Uh, so, segment number one here is what is Svelte? So, let's, let's talk technical uh, a little bit here. So... I spent a couple days just learning Svelte, doing a, little, a few small projects, watching a few videos on it, delving into its infrastructure, going through its plugins, stuff like that. Like I, I did do a pretty deep dive into it. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in any way whatsoever. Like I, I'm not going to build a massive project in it just to talk about it. Uh, I'm not going to go too, too deep into its technical aspects as well. I'm just going to be kind of giving you an overview of what I understand it is. Uh, and some other things like the, just to break down the segments a little bit, we're going to talk, uh, why you want to choose Svelte instead of other frameworks and also when isn't a good time to use Svelte. So starting with the first thing is what is it? Uh, so Vue.js, React, JS, and Angular are all frameworks that are meant for reactive web apps. Svelte actually, uh, which actually apparently stands for cybernetically enhanced web apps, not stands for, but that's what their like slogan is. Not a huge fan of that slogan. Cybernetically enhanced web really, apps. I really don't like that slogan because it, it doesn't. Sounds like our version of Skynet. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> like, like why would they do that? Like, why is it cybernetically enhanced? Anyway, that's their. That's what they're going with. That's on their main site for some reason. Whatever. Um, it's actually a compiler, not a framework in the traditional sense. So the difference here is that the compiler solves a similar problem. So what React. View and Angular do is allow you to build reactive websites where if data is changed, the UI on the website is also changed like with the data change. So whenever if there's an input that changes a piece of data, something like a you know a number will change on the site, and that's all linked together through this reactive framework. Whereas Svelte uh, actually compiles everything into a just basic JavaScript, HTML, and CSS files which automatically manipulate the DOM. So Svelte actually does not utilize a virtual DOM the same way that everyone else does. So Vue.js, React, and Angular all have a virtual DOM, which essentially mimics the real DOM. And whenever a change is made to the virtual DOM, it will compare it to what's in the real DOM. And if there's a difference, then it'll switch it. That's how the virtual DOM works. Whereas Svelte will actually just straight up manipulate the DOM without any middle layer. Uh, 
and it'll do its comparisons and stuff, but it won't compare it to an entirely created virtual DOM. It'll just compare it to the local code, like the local variable that it's stored in. So when you're reading Svelte code, that compiled Svelte code, it's actually very human readable. Um, it's, it's pretty logical when it compiles down. Whereas when you're reading something like React or Vue.js code that's been compiled, it's a lot more complex and it's, it would be near impossible to understand what's going on in a compiled Vue.js or React.js app. So that, those are the major differences between Svelte and Vue. And because of the fact that it, it is a compiler instead of a whole framework built into it, Svelte's package size, when it actually creates a website, from its code is very small compared to all the all the other competition. Um, it doesn't package anything it doesn't need. Uh, it's also extremely lean, and I'll talk about that in in the next in the next section too. It's very it's very bare bones essentially. Uh, what what it has in it is essentially the ability to link a variable to a piece of uh, DOM manipulatable content. So to a div, like a variable, like a one, like a variable A is equal to one. And then you can display that variable A inside of your DOM in template format. And then when something happens to that variable, like let's say you add a number to that variable. So if A is equal to one, you do a A++, A++ that makes a two. That code will then automatically execute and update the DOM to to show it in the html that's all that's packaged into svelte essentially those kinds of things so it still has the basic infrastructure of a reactive component so everything's component based you have your html css and javascript all in a component all the css is still scoped which means that when you write css you can write css uh even for like a a regular tag like an h1 tag or a div tag or a whatever and it'll only affect that component the whatever you're writing in you can have multiple components you can still import them into a major component and stuff like that all the basic infrastructure of a javascript framework is in place but only the basic stuff for instance anything to do with routing and anything to do with state management that's external which means that you're either building it yourself or you're using a package that has it built into it. So you're, you're, you're depending on someone else for that. Could be good or bad. Again, we'll discuss it a little bit later. The syntax also is very, very similar for uh, in Svelte to all the other frameworks, but it's a lot simpler to understand because it's, it's using just essentially vanilla JavaScript with a few added extra words. Essentially, that's all it is. When you're writing a function, you're just declaring it just like you would a vanilla JavaScript function. And when you're executing that function uh, in the DOM, like if you want to add an on-click listener, it's a little bit different where you have to, you know, set it to a specific uh, Svelte framework code word, which is like on colon and then the function name to a button. It's very simple to understand. It's I would say it's a little bit simpler than Vue. I'm going to compare most of my knowledge of Svelte to Vue knowledge. And uh, because I'm way more familiar with Vue than React, I have used React a couple of times, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick to Vue. But know that all these comparisons will be very similar to the other frameworks. Like when I compare it to Vue, I'm essentially comparing it to React and Angular as well, because they're, those three are a little bit closer than Svelte is to the rest of them. That, that, that's, what I, that's all I have to say. Uh, um, well, I have, I have a yeah. question then. So this, like I'll, I mean, as a person that's only heard the name and never actually used it, so... I'm sure there's a couple of newbies in the audience that are not sure what the heck, you know, is going on. So one of my questions then as a newbie as well is, 
what is is like Svelte its own language? Because you're mentioning it's a compiler that you know is is it just a compiler that is working with Vue.js and React and Angular, or like how how does Svelte fit in to this to this like puzzle at, at a high end, like at, or at a high level? It is not its own language, uh, and it doesn't work with Vue, React, or Angular. You can technically use both at the same time, but um, but and they I'm are sure separate. Such a, they are very they're very separate. Yeah, okay. they're 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 essentially solving the same problem. Okay, they're same. They're they're solving the same problem. They're not again not separate languages. It just has its own syntax, so it has its own keywords that you can use to do some power some some stuff in Svelte. Its own link like the the way it handles reactivity is a, a separate kind of syntax that you have to learn. But their website, their documentation is pretty good for that, I would have to say. Um, again, I prefer Vue.js's documentation a little bit more, personally. Right. I think their tutorials and their just straight-up documentation, their API documentation, is a little bit more clear. But Svelte is also, Svelte is also really good in that sense. And so Okay, I'm, so then, then follow-up question then. So, like... Obviously, so for example, Vue.js, React.js um, are obviously not their own languages, but they're both JS using their own keywords. And in React's case, it's usually JSX, stuff like that. So this is just like, an, this is just like React. This is just like using JS in a different way. It's like just like JSX where it has its own Svelte SX, if you will. Exactly. So J, uh, React is .jsx, right? Files. Yeah. Uh, and Svelte is dot Svelte, and Vue is dot Vue. But it's still all JS at the end of the day. It's still all JS in the end. Yes. Okay. okay. And it compiles down to again JS as well. So you're writing JS compiles to JS. That's all pretty straightforward. Just the way it handles, for instance, on created events like on on load, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff is a little bit different in all the different frameworks. But essentially, everything else is is very similar. So the the main things that you have to learn on are how reactivity works in each one. So how you actually link that, you know, var a equals one to a doc to a template in the um, HTML. So div, you know, how how you how you would use that template syntax. It's essentially like handlebars or mustache, if you mm-hmm. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it it uses very similar formatting, so you should be familiar with it. If you're if you're ever done any sort of templating in html like there's different templating languages in html they're all very similar they just use handlebars most of them one some use two handlebars some use one etc so this one uses one svelte uses a one handlebar kind of method where one on one side one on the other and uh, the code that you want is in the middle so that's about it i I don't know if you have any anything else matt no i i I think uh i think it kind of makes sense so i'll just like basically you you write in svelte files like in in your svelte files with their JSX like I'm just comparing it for people that have used other languages so they have their own syntax just like how JSX is has its own syntax with React JS and then the compiler quite literally is essentially a translator in layman terms that translates the Svelte syntax into straight up JS so that the browser can read obviously the files because the browsers don't read Svelte files exactly right. that's essential that's exactly it um now, where and, would you use this? Like, where you're saying ReactiveX, but like, is, is is there a benefit here where you could maybe use this? Like, I know you, I think, I think you mentioned in a previous episode that you can't really use React.js, for example, with Cordova and stuff like that. Is this a very appable 
if you will. <laughs> and this so, is a very appable way to do it. So that's a perfect segue into segment number two. Oh, okay. Why choose Svelte instead of the other frameworks? Or why choose Svelte at all? I'll, I'll, I'll talk about both of them. So just because Svelte is a new and shiny thing doesn't mean it immediately replaces all the other older, more established frameworks. Um, but it also means, but it also doesn't mean that there's no room in the market for it. There is room and it can be very beneficial for a lot of workflows. So I'm just going to mention a few of them. There's way more. Uh, but big thing with Svelte again, like I mentioned before is the package size. So compared to React, compared to Vue, the final package, the final HTML, CSS and JavaScript files are, are very small. And because of that, the performance and the speed of Svelte is sometimes quicker depending on what you're doing. So because of that, if size of your website is ever a important thing, like if you're like, if you're sitting down, you're like, we need this site to be as small as possible for whatever reason. One of the reasons that I can think of is if you're working on a website that's only going to be serving or mostly going to be serving low power emergence, emerging markets, emerging markets that like barely have access to, you know, phone phones or computers that are like 10 years old stuff like that emerging markets where power is very expensive where like you don't know what kind of device they're going to have so if you're going to have that kind of situation i can see svelte being powerful and if you still need reactive you know reactive technologies and stuff like that if you're still making a web app then i can see svelte being important and svelte being considered as a possible solution to a problem okay okay so also, if you're looking for something simple to dive into, so if you're a new developer and you just learned JavaScript, HTML, CSS, um, I th- I think it's a like once you once you have that base core, it is important to go out and look at reactive frameworks like Vue and all that. And if you're just if you're just learned it and you just want to dive into something quickly, Svelte is a good stepping stone in my opinion. And Svelte has it has a lot of features that if you were to understand them very well you can very easily take that knowledge and use it for any of the other frameworks, right? And it, in my opinion, there is something to be said about learning in Svelte it might be a little bit easier than learning Vue or React because the restrictions that you have in Svelte are much lower and the code that you're writing in Svelte is much more in parallel to, v- to vanilla JavaScript. So when you know vanilla JavaScript, you're kind of like when you're writing functions, you're essentially writing vanilla JavaScript functions. Um, in Svelte. Whereas with Vue, you still have to take consideration a lot of, uh, a lot of keywords, a lot of lifecycle events. Um, like job in, in Vue functions are called methods and methods can be created, but then you have to use them in different life cycles. So, or use them in, in the actual HTML as event listeners. So it, it requires a couple of different steps that you have to take. Whereas with Svelte, you can just write a function and then use it right away in, in that uh in that compile in the in the script tags as as you would a regular function in javascript so it's a little bit easier to understand so for learning purposes i think svelte is a good uh stepping stone and it gives you access to dom manipulation um so that's one thing and the other thing i think that is important and a lot of people uh do want to do this is if you want to create your own infrastructure like if you want to have something that's powerful and then build on top of that like one 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 use case of this is if you're a very highly uh security driven company and you don't want to use something that's been pre-built right but you still need a good base 
a good base for your for all of your infrastructure. I think Svelte could be a really good base because it has good good documentation. It has very solid code written. And if you want to create your own state management library, it has the tools for you to create your own state management library. If you want to create your own routing library, it has the tools for you to create your own routing library. So you can create all of that yourself, your own security, your own you know authentication protocols. You can create all that for Svelte as a package just privately in your own company. So I think there is something to be said about that purpose, like over top of uh, React, because React is built on top of Facebook's. React is built by Facebook. So if you're a security conscious company, you might be hesitant to go to React. Vue, uh, it is built open source. It is built by a lot of people, but all these packages are already kind of implemented in Vue. So you have a first-party uh, router, a first-party state management. You could technically build on top of that as well, but it has a lot in there that you probably don't need if you're in that per- in that uh, scenario. And in my opinion, Svelte would be a good step a good step in that direction where if you just take Svelte and then build on top of it, you can create a very powerful platform for yourself and your company. Can you, uh, for the beginner out there again, can you describe... What like a what a router is and what the uh, what was the other thing state management is state management. and, and okay. could you like give an example like possibly a use case for each? Yes, uh, so a router is just your basic routing uh, like link hrefs. So if you want to have multi pages, multiple pages with components, you have to somehow tell the component that it's going to switch between one component and another component, and then you also have to make it so that the browser understands that you're routing. Because for SEO purposes, for uh, creating uh, site maps and stuff like that, you want to have native functionality. So you don't want it to just quickly switch on the screen most times. Uh, you want it to actually show a route in your URL bar, for instance. That's what a router does. So a router will do all that logic for you. And you'll essentially be putting in very similar to H- AHREF style routing, uh, like a nav bar, like a, you know, slash... Uh, slash about slash contact and stuff like that. And then the router will handle the actual component switching and the URL and all that. Okay. Does that make sense? So that's a router. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. Nat- Natively, otherwise you would have to do it yourself and then you would have to manage the URL bar and everything else yourself, the, the, and pass information props and stuff between them. Now state management brings in another thing where let's say you have a, an application that, has a a shopping cart, right? Uh, you have to keep track of what's in the shopping cart. Now, to do that with multiple components, you would have to either pass information from one component to another component and then pass that information to another component as it's going by. You would have to keep passing information. It's all doable, but it could get really complex. What a state management library does uh, f- for Vue, it's Vuex. For React, it's Oh, you know what? I can't remember. But regardless, uh, it's a state management library. If you just Google that, you'll get it. But what a state management library does is it gives you a central place where you can store all the information that's going to be shared by components. Okay. And and when that information is updated, it gives you the ability to automatically update those components. So, so for example, say, if someone was logged in even. Yes, correct. So state your management admin bar would show up. Exactly. It would check the state, the, state man, the, the store that the state management library is uh, managing yeah, and would automatically display that admin bar if it sees that you're logged in. 
Or if you go to a different page on your site and you need to display the price, then it would check your state management library that you've been updating the price in and it'll show that price without you having to explicitly pass that information back and forth between the components that need it. Right, right. So it's just it's just essentially like a store. Store where you can keep a bunch of your stuff. But Almost it, like where people would put like um where people would put like a stuff in a global variable or something. Exactly. It it allows you to use kind of a global state, but it also is very intentional where you're not going to be accidentally, you know, overwriting things. Right. So right. that's the point of the thing is to so that you don't use global variables so that you actually when you're when you're writing something to a state management thing you're actually uh committing it and then you're mutating it so you're you're doing multiple very intentional steps to make sure that you're not accidentally doing something yes yeah yeah in a larger library when you have a bigger team it's very important to have that kind of infrastructure in place otherwise these with these global variables one thing could be writing it at the same time another thing could be writing it at the same time another thing could be writing it all that creates this disaster uh yeah so that's that's about it for why we, you would choose Svelte in my eyes. Um, there are plenty of other reasons, I'm sure. And let us know on on the socials. Let us know in the Discord anywhere. Uh, if you if you use Svelte, what you've used it for. If you think it's better, let us know because I'm complete. Like I can change my mind and add more stuff to this and all that. Um, but let's go on to segment number three. Is when is it not a good time to use Svelte? So if you already have a framework in place like Viewer React, like let's say your project is already underway, you've gone, you know, to a certain step with it, you have a bunch of stuff in place, and all of a sudden Svelte comes in on the market and you're like, oh, a new shiny new toy. In my eyes, there's no real reason for you to switch to it. Like you shouldn't be switching from an already established framework like Viewer React uh, to Svelte because feature-wise, they're very, very similar. Like anything that you can do in Svelte, you can definitely do in Viewer, Re- Viewer React and more. And I'll get to that. Um, when you have a larger team and you don't want to build every single additional feature, like I was saying before, where maybe you you are of that mindset where you want to build every feature on top of your framework because you want to have it privately and stuff like that. But it, most of the time, you don't want to do that because it's very costly, very time consuming, and it also is highly prone to errors, highly prone to issues. So, but if you're in a team that doesn't want to do that, Svelte isn't really for you because it doesn't have a great package list. It doesn't have that many libraries. It doesn't have that much built into it. It's very bare bone. Like it's essentially like this is what you get. You get something that has reactivity in it. And that's it. Like you can, you can manipulate data and that data will automatically be updated in your HTML. That's what you're getting was felt. <laughs> and if that's not enough for you, then you're going to have to use a third party thing. You're going to have to build it yourself. That's it. So if you're in the, in a team that needs many different pieces of functionality, in my eyes, felt's not there yet. I don't know. It probably will get there where the first part, like where plugins will become really mature. But again, it doesn't have any first party plugins. It's essentially only the library. So Vue has a first-party router and a first-party state management program built by the Vue team, which in my eyes is really valuable because anytime the Vue updates, they have to account for those plugins, no matter what, because they're built by them. Whereas with something like React or Svelte, uh, they don't have those, those. So when React, the React team updates something, 
they're not obligated. Now they usually do, but they're not obligated to tell the other, like first, like the the first part or the third party plugin teams, like the ones that create the routers and they create the the um, state management libraries to update. Or or the other thing is that a different library could come up, and this library could close down. So the one that you've been using on your enterprise level project could close down at some point because it just can't compete with someone else. Where that won't happen in a first in a first party scenario, so that's why I kind of lean towards Vue over all of these uh, in an enterprise level right now, and I think a lot of people are leaning that way. Vue is is, is a very very popular framework at this point. Um, I can say it's pretty established. Like I've over the last three or four days, I've talked to a few developers, and all of their enterprise level applications are switching to Vue, which is interesting. And it's three different developers from three different companies. And they were using React before, they were using Angular before, stuff like that. So I think that says a lot about where the industry is going. Um, but it also says a lot about Svelte. Uh, it, Svelte's been around the least amount of time out of all those, but it is pretty mature for where it is in my eyes too. I'm not, like, I'm not saying it's not a, it's not a good thing. I just think that the biggest, the biggest issue is might maybe its biggest strength as well is like how simple it is and how minimal it is. So again, doesn't don't they don't have those first party plugins or the third party plugins so i did go a deep dive into their plugin infrastructure and i did find a pretty good third party router pretty good third party state management library nothing wrong with them people have put a lot of work into them but i also didn't see that much usage compared to the other ones so my worry is that if i were to go and invest my time and invest my money into it what happens if another one comes up because maybe they're not the most efficient ones? They're the only ones, essentially. There's only like one or two routers and and I think only one state management library. So that would be my worry. Um, and then all the other plugins as well, like Matt mentioned Cordova recently. Vue has a third-party Cordova plugin, which is actually really cool. So when you have that plugin installed, all you have to do is literally type in an npm run build Cordova command. And it'll create a Cordova project for you with all the infrastructure in place, everything in place. And then whenever you need to update that Cordova project, you just run that command again. And that's it. It's actually, in my eyes, easier to manage a Vue Cordova project than a regular Cordova project, <laughs> as crazy as it is, because of that because of that building infrastructure, so which does, is interesting. Does it like do the – because like when you do a Vue project, you kind of have like a manifest, if you will. With like you name the project and stuff like that, is it pulling that information into the Cordova project as well? It's not just calling it like my first app or whatever it's called. Uh, yes, it does do that. Wow, that's pretty good. It's pretty good, and you have you have some leeway on that. Like you can actually set it yourself. Right, right. Because uh, it does go through like a little command line, you know, construction interface. Is there or like a lot of limitations, or is it just like you just build your app, whatever the heck you want, and then you just literally run that npm, you know, run Cordova or whatever, build Cordova, and then. That's it. So, okay. Uh, I was going to say there's no limitations, but there is one limitation uh, or not really a limitation, but there's one caveat uh, with Cordova. I don't want to deep dive into Cordova or anything, but with Cordova, you have to do that uh, initialization app initialization event listener. Oh, so oh yeah. A, yeah. There, there's a, remember there's a custom event listener that you have to listen for, for Cordova, but you're able to do that because you've installed this plugin view actually gives you an event listener to do so any of your specific cordova code that ties into cordova plugins specifically that's the only time you really need it the event listener 
if you have a Cordova plugin, you can still use it because this plugin gives you the event listener inside of you. So that's the only caveat. That's the only thing I had to kind of change because I did use a, a few Cordova plugins. Um, one for, I think, barcode scanning and the other for like offline storage or something. I, I can't remember now, but regardless, I did use some of them. But everything else is 100% compatible. Everything works just fine. Like there is, I haven't found any downfalls essentially, which is kind of surprising to me. So again, why I was talking about this was because Svelte doesn't have that. Like Svelte doesn't have a Cordova plugin right now. Now Cordova is a niche thing, I, fairly niche, but it's pretty popular, but it's niche anyway in my eyes. Um, so maybe that's not a huge deal for most, like 99% of people out there right now that are listening especially to this. Uh, but for me, that's a kind of an indication of, okay, so I'm going to have to build pretty much any little thing that I don't find, which is a problem. Um, so that, other than that, like really, um, Svelte is closer to vanilla JS than any other framework. It is in my eyes, if you're going to be learning from scratch, like if you're going to be learning a development method from scratch, you should still learn vanilla JS first anyway. So Svelte isn't really a, a way to learn reactive frameworks without learning JavaScript. I think you should still learn regular JavaScript, build a, build a couple pages with just, you know, JavaScript, CSS, and, uh, and HTML. And then you, if you want, then you can use Svelte as a stepping stone, or you can go on into, if you're more confident, you can go on into any of the other frameworks. That's just fine too. So that's where I see Svelte kind of breaking down a little bit in my eyes. Like I don't see, I see the fits, like a few fits, but I don't see it being a major player in the game right now. Do you think that um, it's lack of maturity? Like Svelte is newer than Vue.js even, and Vue.js is new in the yeah. grand scheme. I think yes, but I think yes, lack of maturity is a big, big part of it. But I think the fact that Vue handles things a little bit more corporate in my eyes, it is open source. It's developed by a team. Uh, it's not managed by one single company, just like Svelte, right? Which is what the big thing of Svelte. But it has those first party app plugins and it has the first party support and it has like that team behind it that is dedicated to building features on top of Vue and optimizing Vue and stuff like that, whereas Svelte is still one guy, from what I understand. Um, they might have a small team here and there, but I'm not I'm not 100% sure. I, the last I've heard, it's still one dude. Uh, so again, that, that would be my hesitation for picking it. Now, I'm not saying, again, like you said, maturity. If a year down the line, they have everything, you know, nailed down, they have a team, they're very you know, respondent and all that. I could see Svelte developing something cool because writing Svelte code is actually really awesome. Like actually the syntax of Svelte, I would say is better than all th all of them because it's so close to the, uh, na uh, native JavaScript. It's so close to all that. Like it's just like you're writing regular JavaScript code with a few little caveats and that's it. So I like that a lot. Uh, that's my probably my favorite part about Svelte is writing the code. That's probably where but, the limitations come from, right? Is because it's so minimal that they're with every decision possibly in the design of it, they're literally saying, "Hmm, do we add you know X component? Do we add X functionality, or do you know do we not need that? Because that's going to yeah. add bulk. Everything adds bulk." Yeah, exactly. And that's a, like that's an okay platform to take. Like it, like I said before, there's some people that or some companies that want a bare bones framework and maybe that's what they're aiming for 
Maybe they're aiming for those companies that just want something that just works, a good base, and then to build on top of it because there is demand for that. Uh, maybe that's all they're going to be. So, and that's okay. And that's probably a pretty big market, maybe bigger than I think it is. But, um, for me right now, I'm all about speed and with a one man team or a two man team, building every little component, uh, is just not feasible. As far as I can see, like I, I need to have good third party and especially good for first party support before I can commit to anything at this point. So that's where I land with Svelte is I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced that they, they have that. Um, I could be wrong and I would love to be proved wrong by anyone out there. Like, just let me know if you're, if you're a huge Svelte guy or girl, attack me, attack me at me on Twitter. Hit me, um, excuse excuse that, me. The yeah. line is hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, I think that's, I think that's about it. Uh, I will say, um, that I will be doing a companion piece on this and just watch out for that. It'll probably come out on medium and on dev.2. Uh, it'll have a little bit more of a depth in dive on the syntax differences between Vue and Svelte specifically. Um, so just check it, check that out. You'll see some code in there and stuff like that. Uh, other than that, I don't know about you, Matt. Do you want to move on to the web news? I'd say, I'd say web news. Yeah. I think that's a good, uh, good overview on Svelte. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So I think one of the first times that we're going to, well, not one of the first times, but what, like very rare occasion where we're going to be doing actual news in the web news. Uh, NPM purchased by GitHub slash Microsoft. Now this has happened a few weeks ago, which is weird to say at this point. Like I feel like time has been moving completely differently. So it it, it was only like two weeks ago that this happened, but it feels like two months. Um, but it did happen. I, they I, they purchased. I, I have a brief question for you actually about the time thing before we move on from time. Do you feel weird when people message you about regular things now? Somebody was messaging yes. me and being like, man, I kind of want to pick this up. But I'm like, oh, okay. Is the shop going to be open? Are you going to be allowed to use it? Is, like, is your house going to be there? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. like those are my questions. And other people are like, man, like, I want to pick this up. I want to buy this or like, you know, regular shooting the shit. And I'm just like, but I'll probably be dead. So like, why are you talking to me? Well, okay. No, <laughs> I don't have that kind of pessimism, but uh, I don't know. I'm, it is weird I, to it, plan weird, normal right? things. Yeah, it's weird. To, it's even weird to like. It was weird to write these podcast notes because it's a normal thing. So I'll I'll say that, but uh, I think it's important to do that. It's weird that uh, we're it, not as effective as we are. Like I was saying to Mike that there's been there's been times when work is busy where I won't leave the house for like three days. Now this this lockdown really hits me on the weekend because I usually go out on the weekend and stuff. But during the week I work from home, and then like my hobby is video games and such. And short of like going out for dinner with my girlfriend, I'm usually home anyway at night. So my time at home, it, it, it feels weird because I'm not affected. And I think that yeah. actually almost makes it more weird. Now, I'm not in the other person's shoes, so I can't really say that. But like, it's just, it's it's weird. Like, I feel like I should, if I was being affected by the, the, the pandemic more directly, I think I'd be busy dealing with it. Whereas I'm not busy dealing with it, and that's what's weird, I think. I don't know, because busy dealing with it, like, if you're affected, you're laid off probably, right? Or, like, so I mean, if busy. I was sick, I would be, you like, can't really, look for a job. really, like, seriously. Well, yeah, that's that's another thing. So you're laid off. Like, just, just picture that situation. So, yeah, maybe if you're sick, you're right, if you're actually sick. But, again, you're sick. Most people are going to experience very light sickness. So you're just locked in a house with, like, the lowest, like, a flu. There's probably but been a even, bunch that thought it was literally a flu. 
and it went yeah. it probably like, like ripped through their household even. and then and it didn't even yeah. exactly like a cold or something and that's why i think the numbers are so underinflated and stuff like that but still like uh if you're a, if you're a person that just got laid off that you're affected by the the coronavirus you can't go look for a job so you're doing nothing uh so all you have time to do is think about it so you're just sitting there and thinking about it like because you can't even go out to distract yourself and then you're worried about your your parents maybe getting sick because they're older you're worrying about your grandparents getting sick because they're older so you're just worrying you have nothing to occupy your time with other than like tv and stuff but you can only watch so much of that uh and you can't even work because again there's no jobs so it's not a great place to be in. Like, there's a there's probably going to be a lot of mental health things coming out of this, um, and you should definitely reach out to your family. You should reach out to you know the hotlines, all the hotlines. Um, I don't have any actual like health advice, obviously, to give anyone, but like I'm just saying, you, you battle through it. Like, it's this is a tough time. I, I I will we, say we I will say as one small mental health note before we dive into this web news because we kind of got off topic now, but um. I had those headaches and everything else, like like, and I know other people that have been the same way. They've been reading the articles and just getting like more gloomy and gloomy and gloomy and gloomy and gloomy. And I, I, I suspect, I suspect this is just because, at the end of the day, the coronavirus is like is like this. The coronavirus is the same, but the but there's so many news articles that it because there's so many news outlets that it makes it look like it's worse. But in reality, like all the news articles will cover a development, but then there's sixty of those articles. So it looks like a lot happened, but really this happened. Like one thing happened, but there's 60 articles. So then it's like 60 times the doom and gloom. And so I just had to stop doing that. But I will say that like, uh, I didn't shower for three days. I'll just say this. I didn't shower <laughs> for three days. Horrible. Didn't change my clothes. But I will say that I felt way better, like getting a little normalcy. Like I have a really dirty neck beard at the moment, which looks horrible. Like it literally looks like dirt. <laughs> But, uh, like, it literally looks like, like, dirt. Uh, but I, uh, had a shower, did a normal, like, day, like, I had a normal work day and stuff, and then I just, like, did some video calls, which I've never done for personal reasons my entire life, and that helped. Yeah, it, it did help. It did actually help, like, a lot. So that's why I think bringing normalcy into your day, bringing that routine back, and, like, you, this whole thing started with, uh, you saying, like, it's weird that someone would mention a normal thing to you i think that is important like i think you should you should look ahead you should look and like if you want that tv or whatever whatever it is you should think about it a little bit like it's bring that normalcy back to your life a little bit this will end this will be over at some point and normal life will begin again um just yeah i think your your advice was good stay off the media uh bring your routine back that's Follow instructions. Follow the government instructions. Yes, follow government instructions. I mean, there is a caveat to that, I think, in some places. Like, if you're listening to this in a place where following instructions is a little bit dangerous, uh, I'm not going to name any countries right now, but there are a few there that are being pretty haphazard about this. Well, in in, in Canada, Uh, I'm going to say from a a Canadian perspective, I'm reading the Canada website and then I'm, I'm shutting off the corona news as much as I can after that. Because yeah, I was just sent three articles idea. about old people dying in my area. Yeah. So that, that that's really great. So now I'm just more depressed when, like, if I didn't know about that, nothing would have changed in my situation anyway. So now I'm just more depressed. So that's it. Yeah. So good. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, stay, stay off the media. All right. Uh, with that, let's let's talk about the news. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> N- you son of a bitch. NPM, 
purchased by GitHub and Microsoft. Uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic. Like honestly, it, NPM is a big package manager, right? It's a node package manager. Almost everything that I do now is tied to NPM, which is interesting. Like before, maybe two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I like, I almost didn't use NPM at all, but now I use it on a daily basis for multiple different packages, like, uh, all right, right view. For instance, we were just talking about it, or even Svelte, I believe. Uh, there are NPM packages. And on top of that, there's a lot of all their plugins are managed by NPM. So any plugin that I install for Vue is managed by NPM. So it does affect me. Um, that's for sure. So essentially what, I, what, what happened now is that Microsoft bought GitHub. Uh, they created VS Code, I think before they bought GitHub, but regardless, VS Code, which is a big dominant IDE in the web development space, as well as other spaces at this point. Uh, and now they've bought NPM. So they're, they're becoming a giant in our industry, directly affecting us. Um, but they're also doing good things for the most part. So they are embracing open source. So they're leaving NPM open source, just like it was. Uh, they, you know, VS Code is an open source application and uh, github has remained if not become better at open source and they released remember when they bought github the big thing they did was they allowed people to have private repositories on github which is something they didn't do before unless you paid so it's free private repositories uh, which is a cool thing and they've only been bringing new new and better features to it and same with vs code like vs code is one of those apps that i i I'm surprised that it's updated so frequently with so many useful features. Like on a, on a consistent basis, at least once a month, I'll be using VS Code and I don't read their like daily, like their weekly blogs or whatever that they post about their features. And I'll be using it and I'll notice a new feature that I didn't know before. And that was just recently updated and that actually improves my workflow, which is cool. Um, so on the one side, really cool. Like Microsoft's doing a really good job at embracing these companies and making them better and allowing them to operate as they were with more funding, essentially, uh, which is great. On the other hand, then the, this, is, this is the question. This is what's leading into the question. Is it good for a company like Microsoft or whatever to own so many essential services that we rely on on a daily basis? Um like, for instance, there's another example of this, Chrome and Google. Chrome now, Chromium, the Google browser uh, platform, is now on Microsoft. Like, Microsoft's Edge is in Chromium and Chrome. Um, and I believe Opera switched to Chromium as well. Yeah. Uh, so, really, all that's left is Firefox, which has its own engine, and Safari, which has its own engine. So, it's just Google, the dominant one. Firefox, the one that is not relevant at this point, really. Like, it's sad because they are pretty good. Well, they, the they, I, I think they etched themselves out a little niche in the developer market. Like, I do use Firefox Developer Edition. I agree with that, but, like, that niche is so small. Like, it's... I mean, it's as small as all these other things we would talk about, like yeah. Svelte and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, small, it, it might be... It's bigger be... than that. But, yeah, it's bigger than that. But still, like, it's it's still really small. And, unfortunately, like... The big thing is with browsers it, before where if a feature was going to go through, it had to go through all these different browsers. So like if you're going to implement CSS Grid, you got to implement them through all these different browsers and all these different browsers had say in how to implement it. So they all got to 
would get together to a certain degree and figure out a way to implement it the best way uh, for all of them. There's positives of that being like, okay, so now you can have uh, now you can have a more defined feature and more opinionated features where like now Chromium owns the market. If they want a feature pushed and they just push a feature to Chromium without even consulting anyone, the other people just have to like quickly, oh my God, what's going on? And they have to catch up. Um, which sucks for them and it sucks for feature development in the future because if Safari pushes a feature, maybe someone cares and maybe Chromium will develop that feature. But if Firefox pushes a feature, Chromium's not going to care. Chromium's not going to adapt. So it's it's a little bit weird. Like it's, it, be, it becomes a situation where one is like a, a monopoly. One It's essentially creating a monopoly where sure, Chrome is great and good for the most part. Like it has, it has its disadvantages like memory management and stuff. But for the most part, it's great. But what happens when it's not? And it owns the market. Like no one can do anything about it. So it's the same. My, the way why I'm saying this is that I think this applies to the Microsoft thing. Like they're great right now. Well, what happens when they're not? Like what happens if a CEO comes and like we're locking everything down, everything's paid now and they own the market. Then you pay. Well, this right? th- like, this happened with a lot of stuff. This has happened with, I mean, not necessarily locking it down, but people have disagreed with, for example, VMware. People have disagreed with VMware, uh, how they handle their VM licensing in the past because there's been you know various changes that people disagree with that. And that's sort of a very industry standard type thing. And, you know, there's other things like VirtualBox and I'm sure some others, but in reality, VMware, you know, is, and I, I don't know, I haven't really followed them re- as, as of recent years, but I know that years ago it was absolutely a standard, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's still a standard today. So you're kind of stuck. But this comes in to play with my ecosystem thing that I mentioned you know, several episodes ago, where it what really sucks is, so for example, I have to, I use the Google Home for my all my smart home stuff. But I can't add anything to my calendar because I use my Microsoft account for all my calendar and email. So in order to do that, I have to have an Amazon Echo with a Microsoft account connected to do that. So now I have two virtual assistants. You know, I have smart speakers. I have smart speakers all over the damn place. Like this is like it's out of control. And you could say, well, move everything over to the Alexa. Sure. But then I get less conversational stuff and I use a bunch of stuff on Google that I couldn't use on the other thing. Like I have uh, Google um, Google Nest Hubs with the screens. I'm not going to give up all that just because I'm going to like switch over to another thing from my calendar. So by having under everything under one roof, in this case Microsoft, you sign it with a Microsoft account to everything, and your Microsoft account is a portal, in our case, to our communication, which is Teams, and email. It, it's a portal to our contacts and calendar, which is you know obviously very closely tied to email. It, it it is a portal to our uh, one of our backup solutions, which is OneDrive. One of our file transfer solutions, which is OneDrive. It is a it is a portal into our GitHub. It is a portal into our VS Code. It is a portal into all of that. It is a po- our Microsoft account is also a portal into logging into our computers, minus your MacBook there. So, I mean, what we pay for with with vulnerability, we get convenience out of, but you are correct in that it is they, – if they actually monopolize, and this is the same with any industry and any company, they can get stagnant or say, okay, we own the market. Let's just jack the price up. This is a classic no, competi- no, no competitor-like thing. 
Could you imagine if could you imagine if WordPress were the only way to make a site for a consumer? The only way for a consumer to have access to a CMS. WordPress probably wouldn't be open source. WordPress would probably be $100 a month or something. This is why these enterprise uh, CMSs, some are free, sure, certainly, but for the most part, they're extremely expensive. And when I say extremely expensive, I mean five to $7,000 US a month is not unheard of. Uh, oftentimes that includes the actual company managing it as well. So there's like some service fees in there, of course, a lot of it is, but even still, how much, how much are you, if you're a customer, how much are you paying your WordPress admin? <laughs> like a hundred dollars a month, maybe, <laughs> maybe a thousand if it's a big site, but the enterprise CMS is, is sort of a more locked down area. They, they have less reach but they only reach for the big customers. And so that's just an example of what we could see if, in this case, you know, GitHub and everything else is very widespread, but Microsoft owns all of it, right? Whereas these enterprise CMS have less reach, but they own all of their chunk, all of their piece of the market, and they have very few competitors, very few people coming after them. Microsoft has people currently coming after them, with different frameworks and different tools and stuff like that, but they're slowly gobbling them up. I love it because I like signing into everything on my Microsoft account. I'll be honest with you. I, I like doing that. I do that on my Cineplex app, whatever, right? But I can still see the concern for like, certainly like what if like right now I buy pretty much every, every subscription Microsoft has to offer. I pretty much, I pretty much own it for the most part from a consumer perspective, game pass, Xbox live, uh, Office 365, we have Office 365 business, everything. So, you know, whether it's the business paying for it or me paying for it for, for personal stuff, at the end of the day, I own almost all of their subscriptions and I use all of them to death. But what if all of a sudden Game Pass, like just if I take it to the consumer side, what if Game Pass becomes garbage and there's no one to fight them? Well, I could certainly drop my subscription, but then I'm losing a large part of my, you know, game collection and such. So now we have the problem of what do I do? You know, that that's the question. What do I do at that point? So I think it's a I think it's a a, a push and pull. But I also think to look at the greener side of things is that with things like Svelte, actually with things like the fact that you already mentioned a bunch of competitors, Svelte, React.js, Angular, um, the other one, Vue.js, you mentioned. These are all people that said, okay, I'm done with this, because these are creators. These are developers. They're creators. And they said, I- I'm sick of this. And they'll go and do something else. Like, look at GitLab. GitLab is, is I never heard of GitLab for, I mean, I heard of it, but I never saw anyone share a GitLab or a thing in, in my life until last year. I never really heard of GitLab that much. I don't have my ear to the pulse of that infrastructure all that much. Like, I wasn't reading the news every day, but I've heard the name, but that was it. I'd never do anything about it. Now I have a GitLab account. Bitbucket is a, is, is a competitor. So I think in terms of the developer sphere, we're insulated from the monopolization to an extent because there will always be someone like Brackets. You know, Brackets is still out there. That's an IDE. We're in the creator sphere. Someone's gonna, someone's gonna create a. If you take it to the consumer level, someone's gonna create another YouTube channel and do it better than you, or do it different than you. It's literally just to that degree. Yep, yeah, that's true. I mean, like the, for every single one of the things that they bought, 
VS Code, NPM, uh, GitHub, there are competitors still, which is good. And there are good competitors, like Yarn is the competitor to NPM, for instance. Right, yeah, um, yeah. And it's a good one. A lot of people like Yarn a lot better than NPM, uh, which is fair. So there are still major competitors, but – so I, th- I think we are good. Like I think we are safe, and I think as far as Microsoft is right now, they're doing a very good job at promoting the applications that they buy rather than stifling them and adding monetization into them. Uh, unnecessary monetization, I should say. Like monet- adding monetization is fine. In my eyes, obviously, they get something back from from your products, but yeah, they, they invested in these things. Yeah, exactly. Like they got to get something back, but adding unnecessary monetization, uh, stealing user data too much, like they, they don't do that as much as I as much as I thought they would um, when they were first started buying all these companies. But that's not to say like I'm fully convinced that five years down the line. They won't do that. Like for instance, npm right now, any applicate any public package on npm is free. I wouldn't put it past them in the next few years to add a paid tier to npm packages, so that people are effectively selling apps, like if a you will. store. Yeah, yeah, like a store on on the npm. I'm not gonna say that's gonna happen. I hope it doesn't. Um, in fact, let me let me just. I think there are instances of that happening right now where NPM does have some paid packages through a um, – but I don't think it's <sighs> – Well, one of the one of the things they did I'm from sure. the consumer sphere, and I'm sure people have, people have seen this, is they've, they've, added, uh, they've added a full store to Minecraft. My, my, Microsoft yes. purchased Minecraft. And yes, the mm-hmm. console version of Minecraft had – had, uh, you know, certain paid things that the PC Java version didn't, like skins and stuff like that. But there's actually, like, a full-out, like, Minecraft store now, and there's people making it in, like, little... I don't want to say apps, but they're making, you know, shirts and stuff like that, skins, and they're selling it for yep. the Minecraft coin, which is, a you know, digital premium currency. Yeah, so it's... That may be the, the, the way that they're going for it right now. I don't see any, like, paid... NPM apps right now uh, or NPM packages so it's it's possible there aren't it could also be any. a part of their infrastructure plan though because Minecraft is a very much a consumer product these are very much not consumerized these are very much developers so there could be a totally different plan where they're maybe they're going to try to push us to make things for their platforms like they might be trying to make us or maybe maybe if they get everyone on VS code and then they themselves make a plugin for VS code for various languages that automatically, like that Cordova thing was spelt, or with uh, Vue.js, that that automatically packages it for the Microsoft Store. Like these guys might be locking down and being like, okay, let's you know maybe not force the people, but let's let's make it so that it's re- it's so easy to publish to the Microsoft Store that you'd be a fool not to use that distribution channel. Like why not get an extra ten downloads? Exactly. So maybe that's where they're going to go with it. I'm hoping not. I hope that they, I hope they continue with what they're doing. I know one big feature that they're going to be migrating from. So NPM has paid versions where you can have private packages. So you can, for your company, have a package that only your company can access. Right. Makes sense. Yep. Okay. And you have to pay monthly for that privilege. Um, I know right now they're saying they're going to fully support that and all, et cetera, et cetera, but they are planning on moving that to GitHub. So they want to use a GitHub, uh, some sort of GitHub version of that. And I don't know what it is because I don't use any of that. GitHub Security Lab, I think, or something like that. Um, anyway, regardless, that, that's, one, one, that's one of the changes that they want to make. 
I don't know if there's any other big changes that they want to make, but that's one. I don't know if anyone uses those packages. Uh, let us know how how they are. But I could. I mean, that's not a big change. Like that's not a huge deal because I'm pretty sure the GitHub version is essentially the same. Like it's a private repository, private with a way to install it automatically with npm or something like that. Right, right, right. So as long as as long as the functionality is the same, I don't see a big deal. Um, hopefully they keep it the same. But other than that, I don't know. Like that's that's pretty much it. I I think I'm my my final thoughts are I'm optimistic that Microsoft will continue down the same path that they are continuing down for in terms of developing the the companies that they buy. Yeah. And I'm with you on like I like logging in with one separate with one account into all my different services. Uh, I do I do think that that's convenient. And the other side of it is that there are competitors that are good. So it's not a monopoly yet. Um and I, I so don't yeah, think I'm it ever I don't think it ever can be. I think it's it's literally yeah. it's literally a matter of some guy, some developer says, I'm sick of this, and he this is this is like the story, right? Always, I'm sick of this. Or I think I can do this better, and he just goes, builds it for a few months or a few years, comes out, bam, there's a competitor. Yep. I think in our industry especially, that's more of a thing than any other industry. So I think I think that's a good point. That's a really good point, and I think you are right where we're we're a little bit advantageous in that sense where if someone really gets pissed off, they will build something better and they will have help doing it. <laughs> like they'll, oh, yeah. they'll open it up and people will build on top of that. And that happens every day. Cause the consumer, so the consumer angle cool. is like you, if, if someone's pissed off at how Minecraft runs a consumer, chances are they're not a developer, let alone a game developer. So they're not gonna be able to make you make a, a Minecraft clone, right. Or a Minecraft competitor. But yep. here we're talking about creators. So Um, I, do you have anything else to add? Do you think of that? I think that's a really, literally went silent. So I think, I think we've, we've kind of finished off. Just a, just a big, big old moment of silence right there. I think we, I think we did it. I think we finished off this, uh, this topic and hope you enjoyed the, uh, the, one of the first news articles that we actually had on web news. <laughs> yeah, it's usually just a big editorial, eh? Jeez. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I'd like to mention before the, uh, conclusion that, uh, I am going to be looking at our um code challenge entries i wish it was with an s i'm going to be looking at our code challenge entry for the slider for the vanilla slider uh code challenge i believe i called it i'm gonna take a look at that and uh might mention it on next next episode but uh keep tuned to our social media because we'll be you know chat like taking a look and possibly posting about that as well so uh, we didn't forget about that just covid panic made us delay that a little bit so anyway uh, thank you for listening and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML, all the things that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter. That's at HTML, everything. Uh, we are on medium and we're on GitHub. Can't speak. And we're also on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patron, Sean from rabbit works, JavaScript. Find him at youtube.com slash rabbit works, JavaScript. Garrick from local path computing and web design. Find him at localpathcomputing.com. Craig, a.k.a. Cosworth. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Selfmade Web Designer. Find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker. Find him at thewebhacker.com. And DL Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you're listening to this on. And we are signing off. <laughs> <laughs>